Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, the IFG's Chief Economist and this week's podcast presenter. Another week, another podcast, another Prime Minister. After Boris Johnson dropped out on Sunday and Penny Mordaunt followed suit on Monday, Rishi Sunak was duly elected as leader of the Conservative Party, becoming this country's 57th Prime Minister. He's the youngest PM in over 200 years, the first British Asian and Hindu to hold the office, and is also almost definitely the richest Prime Minister this country has ever had. So now what? Sunak has vowed to fix the mistakes made by Liz Truss, whose own premiership lasted for a record-breakingly short 50 days. He's promised to govern with integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level, and he says he will get the UK's troubled economy back into rude health, or at least just out of intensive care. To discuss the challenges that await the latest document of number 10 and his first steps as Prime Minister, I'm joined by two IFG colleagues whose professionalism and integrity can never be questioned. That's senior fellow Kath Haddon and Deputy Chief Economist Tom Pope. Hi both. Hi Gemma. Hello Gemma. And I'm delighted to be joined by friend of the IFG show, Emilio Casalicchio, international trade and politics correspondent at Politico, and one of the authors of the absolutely essential morning playbook email. Hi Emilio. Hi, uh, thank you. Thanks very much. How has writing that memo been for the last 50 days? Uh, Very interesting for the last 50 days. It's been, yeah, even more chaotic than it normally is in politics, which, you know, makes for stressful work days, but lots of fun at the same time. Before we start discussing Rishi Sunak's first days in the office, Emilio, what do you really think went on with Boris Johnson's campaign? Uh, Well, I think that firstly, they were surprised Uh, They didn't, I think, expect the government uh, under Liz Truss to collapse quite as quickly as it did. I think there obviously was some hoping uh, that um, she might implode and that there might be a route for him to come back. Um, But I think they were surprised at how quickly it went, um, shown by the fact that he was sitting around uh, in the Caribbean instead of uh, in Parliament, where he probably should have been anyway, because uh, Parliament was sitting and he's an MP, uh, we should always remember. Um, But he rushed back. Uh, seeing a, a potential window. And obviously in politics, you, you sometimes have to kind of jump through these windows if you can to try to get the positions that you want. Um, they kind of scrambled together a bit of a packed campaign quite quickly. Um, uh, you know, got a, got a press person involved and uh, started getting MPs to kind of rally other MPs, etc. Um, I think they worked uh, pretty hard to try and get enough nominations. Obviously, needed he needed a hundred nominations to get to the ballot paper. Um, after a couple of days, uh, they started claiming that they had the uh, hundred nominations, um, but I think a lot of Westminster was pretty skeptical about that. Um, there had already been lots of briefings beforehand from various MPs that aren't so supportive of Boris that his his backing in the party had a definite limit to it, a ceiling of, you know, somewhere between maybe 40, 60-ish MPs, something like that. Um, And it turned out that there were something along those lines publicly declared, um, but the Boris campaign was claiming that it had uh, enough to get over 100 with kind of anonymous names, not even anonymous names that were on the now famous Guido Fawkes uh, uh, spreadsheet, but anonymous names that were anonymous even to to Guido. Um, And I think um, the assumption in Westminster is that what happened ultimately is that he just didn't get the numbers and he realised that that wasn't going to happen and he dropped out. Obviously, his claim uh, was that he could have done it, he could have won it, uh, he would have uh, won the membership as well. But um, I think his suggestion basically was that it would be it would have been much too divisive because there were so many MPs that didn't support him. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to fill uh, many of the government roles that he would have needed to fill and that now wouldn't be the time. So that was the line, whether or not it was true, is very much up for debate. 
Kathy, IFG had warned about getting the party membership involved in electing the next prime minister. In the end, they weren't consulted because only one candidate emerged in the end. Will there be backlash from that? Uh, short term, no. Um, and, and proof is that we're not seeing it at the moment uh, over the course of the Liz Truss premiership. Um, those 50 days, the sort of push for, you know, continuing that the Boris Johnson was ousted too early. Um, this is chaos. The only way to resolve it is for Boris Johnson to come back was, was largely from MPs and in particular Nadine Dorries, who obviously is a long term supporter of Boris Johnson. Um, there, you know, there, there was a bit of noise. I, every interview I was doing seemed to be just after a focus group in which the BBC or somebody else had one person who was very pro Boris Johnson wanted the membership to vote and one person who, um, didn't want, who, who maybe had voted Boris Johnson, but didn't want the membership to have another choice. So, um, I think where it's going to count and we'll probably get on to talking about this is, you know, it hasn't changed facts on the ground in terms of the Conservative Party. And if uh, you're a Conservative MP whose constituency perhaps is quite pro Boris Johnson, um, and also you find yourself in the midst of what are going to be some very difficult um, parliamentary battles over difficult policy issues, and your constituency, you're worried about the polls, you're worried about losing support in your constituency and the future of your um, um, sort of seat and your constituency is kind of a bit grumbling over the, you know, Boris Johnson, poor him, what a shame, um, then I think it might start making a difference to um, MPs, which is where it counts. But at the moment, there doesn't seem to be much of a sort of bubbling of discontent. On to Sunak then. Emilio, what did you make of his first speech as Prime Minister? Uh, well, his very first speech as Prime Minister was just a very short clip um, that, uh, you know, against the Conservative background, it was something like 80 seconds. Um, and it was kind of almost classic Rishi Sunak making a speech, kind of wooden, a bit weird. I always kind of think that the way that he makes speeches, he sounds like he's kind of addressing a, a, a nursery class or something, reading them a story. He's got this intonation that really sounds like he's talking to children. Um, and it was very much that, um, yeah, kind of stilted, very obviously little information after a, a, a week-long campaign where we didn't hear anything about what any of the candidates would 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 do in government. Obviously, we had the, the six weeks or so in the summer where he set out a lot of his stall, but a lot has changed since then um, in terms of, you know, the economy kind of crashing. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, he probably is going to be a lot more limited than, than he'd like to have been previously. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was very short. Obviously, they explained that you know, by the fact that he wasn't actually really prime minister yet. He was um, uh, just waiting, you know, the, the handover day was the next day and it wouldn't have been right to start setting things out before Liz Truss was actually out of office. Um, so it was kind of a almost tokenistic attempt to show that he existed uh, in public after, you know, weeks of just being completely silent since the leadership contest ended. He did, um, he came out of, um, he addressed the MPs, uh, just uh, after it was announced that he was um, that he'd won the contest, uh, he went into one of the the main committee rooms in Parliament, addressed the MPs, and when he came out, we a lot of the journalists were outside in the in the corridor waiting for him, um, and you know. I asked him, Mr. Sidak, are you going to you going to take any questions from the press after you know a, a campaign that had just seen him take zero questions? Um, and, and even in the previous uh, one six in the six weeks over summer, he didn't really take that many. Um, and obviously, he completely ignored us all and carried on. So hopefully, there'll be a little bit more engagement uh, as we go forward. But yeah, at the very beginning, uh, very little to see from Sunak, and you know, kind of classic Sunak demeanour when we did. And now that we've seen a bit more of him, including at PMQs, obviously one of the issues with Liz Truss was people 
said that she wasn't great at public speaking and couldn't really get beyond that. It, what do you make of Sunak now? You've seen a little bit more of him. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I would I would have to agree to an extent that I think that Sunak also struggles with the public speaking element of it. So, like I say, the very first few seconds on TV were a bit weird. Um, he did the speech outside uh, on the steps of uh, number 10 um, when he first entered Downing Street as Prime Minister. Um, that was definitely better, but, you know, still kind of a bit wooden, classic Sunak. And, you know, he set out a bit of his vision and, you know, he paid tribute to trust while also saying that she made mistakes, etc. It, it was politically quite interesting because, yeah, he made these comments about trust and he made some sort of similar comments about Boris, which were as 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 praising as they were kind of criticizing, which was really interesting. I think that he's shown that he gets the politics a bit more than other people I think have given him credit for. Um and then obviously yeah the main thing that we've seen him do is is Prime Minister's questions this year, which actually um I, I was, you know, I was I found it very interesting to watch. I don't think I've enjoyed watching PMQs uh ever. Uh but I actually found this kind of enjoyable. It, it was it was seeing uh you know uh Sunak, someone who since basically David Cameron, I think they haven't had someone that's kind of good at doing that. But Sunak was, yeah, kind of quick on his feet, very clear, making very political arguments, kind of going for political attacks in a way that maybe, for example, Boris did. But Boris was so, so, um, it was so frenzied and intense that it kind of didn't necessarily land very well. And obviously, Boris just had so much baggage anyway that it made it difficult for him. Um, and obviously, yeah, Starmer as well, like fairly competent uh, Labour leader, definitely after the previous one in terms of this kind of political set piece event. Uh, so it was really interesting to see these two people kind of uh, butting heads uh, in the commons. I thought it was, yeah, very, uh, very fun and uh, interesting to watch. I think that, I mean, the main thing that I took out of the the speech he did outside um, or in, in Downing Street uh, was referencing the, the 2019 manifesto. And in particular, there were sort of two aspects that he focused on. One was very firmly saying this was a mandate for the parliamentary party. That's who it belongs to, not to one individual. So that was a riposte to the, the Johnsonites arguing that it was his personal mandate, which is constitutionally illiterate. Just get that in. Um, and secondly, to say that he's going back back to it. And our colleague Jordan, Jordan Urban has, has written a piece pointing out that this is kind of both sensibly politically and also in terms of sort of handling government because um, politically it is your mandate. It is your way to um, sort of you know, try and quell your MPs by saying, look, this is what you were elected on. That's the the main thing that whips sort of say is you were elected on this. This is the manifesto. You've got to follow it. Um, it allowed him to slay a few dragons like, you know, the the fracking stuff that was <laughs> precipitated Liz Truss's fall, um, where he's able to say, no, we're going to go back to that. And the ban is back in place. Um, and also it makes sense sort of in terms of efficiency of government, because you've only got two years till a general election if one isn't forced upon you sooner. Um, and that is what government has been working on. So if you kind of go with the grain where it is possible, it at least allows you to throw out the sort of I've delivered. Uh, we've already seen a push for a slightly new um, Sunak uh, policy area around skills. Um, but going back to the 2019 election um, manifesto and also allows him a sort of platform from which to say, but actually times have changed. And these are the reasons why actually we can't continue with aspects of the 2019 election um, manifesto, which he's going to have to do at some point. Tom, on that question of the 2019 manifesto, one of the big pieces there was the pledge to levelling up, which seemed to really get sidelined under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. Have you picked up any anything in the last few days about where this now stands under uh, Sunak? 
I think only in, in the big indications first, as, as Kath said, the fact that he's gone back to the 2019 manifesto and is leaning on it. Leveling up really was right at the heart of, of that pitch in 2019. So if, if that's where he's sort of deriving his program for government, you'd assume that leveling up might be a bigger feature. The, the other big clue, I suppose, is that Michael Gove is, is yeah. back in that department and he was the, the sort of big figurehead who really was driving that. He was the person who, who wrote the leveling up white paper, all 350 pages of it. And I think now maybe I didn't waste my time and spending quite, quite so long pouring through it. And I think what, what will be really interesting over the next few weeks is, is whether Michael Gove sort of has the ability to push this forward throughout government, because this isn't really something that can be driven from one department. It's not just one secretary of state that can lead it. It needs broad political support. And I think when Rishi Sunak was in number 11, actually, he seemed pretty sceptical of levelling up. Certainly, if you look at his May's lecture earlier this year, which came very shortly after the white paper or around the same time, actually levelling up and, and sort of regional inequality didn't feature there at all. So I, th- I think it, it's, it's still... Sort of to be determined how much Rishi Sunak re- really buys into this, and I think if Michael Gove is to be successful, he will need that that broader buy-in from Number Ten as well. Kath, coming then to the sort of broader question about the cabinet, mm. we at IFG have talked about the need for a unity cabinet. Is that your sense of what Sunak has now picked? Yeah, there's a, a good Stephen Bush uh, piece in the FT talking about how it's kind of he's picking off the the future arguments by making sure that a particular faction is covered so that the whips can say, look, we put so-and-so in. Um, so there's definitely a sort of 3D chess has gone into the formation of not just his cabinet, but his whole government. It was always going to be a tall order to balance the three things that you needed to do. One was uh, sort of unity or rather at least getting representation across um, the political party because unity may be a bit harder than that. Um, uh, secondly, making sure you're putting talent in there um, and competent um, ministers. And then thirdly, stability and not changing too many ministerial jobs because you know, you can talk about endlessly about the number of changes uh, in various departments in recent years. Was it five education secretaries uh, we're now on to? Um, so that was always going to be a tall order to manage to, to do all of those things. He has done that. Uh, obviously, the the big troubling aspect is uh, Swella Braverman uh, and the reappointment of her as Home Secretary only a, a week after she was sacked for uh, a quite serious security breach. Emilio, are you picking up any vibes from within Westminster about the success of this cabinet formation? How much of a honeymoon period do you think Sinak's going to get? Uh, yeah, how much of one I think is difficult to, to say, but you know, he's definitely getting something of a honeymoon period, although I think yeah, the the the, the row about Suella Broverman is definitely making it a little bit less pleasant of a honeymoon. Um, uh, definitely, I feel like Various different wings of the party, once the first cabinet was appointed, were saying that um, they were happy about it and they thought that generally it was a unifying attempt, at least, um, at forming a cabinet. Um, you know, I had uh, MPs that had supported Boris uh, that were happy about it, um, cabinet ministers that didn't support Sonak at any point that he kept in that were happy about it. Um, uh, the kind of One Nation Tories were, were definitely happy about it as well. It, it seemed like it was a good attempt, at least, to try to unify. And yes, uh, like Kath was saying, just create this sense of stability and um, and 
continuation really because yeah there's been so much chop and change and i think that his main priority really is kind of showing the world actually i'm kind of a stable guy compared to obviously the last uh, couple of months under this trust um so i think that's key i think one of the only kind of niggling things one of the kind of big niggling things aside from the suella thing really is um was what happened to penny morden because i feel like um people i, I think she and people around her i think would have hoped for something a bit more you know she did get to the 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 last three i think in the leadership race in the summer and then obviously she kind of was the runner-up you know, by default, uh, in the in the leadership race, uh, just gone. And I think that there was some hope that she would kind of be rewarded, if that's the right word for for that. You know, kind of show that okay, you know, you did very well, and 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 here's here's a job to kind of show it, I suppose. Um, but in the end, she was just kept on in her existing job as leader of the House of Commons, which is you know uh, an important job, but it's not like a great office of state or whatever, which I think is what she was hoping for. Um, so I think there was some discomfort that she didn't get a little bit more recognised for that. But, you know, she stayed in the job and uh, she apparently was offered something else and rejected it. She seems kind of relatively happy. I think there was a bit of grumbling. Um, but, you know, it feels like other than the Suella thing, most of it is kind of settled. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'd say on that is, um, whilst don't disagree with a lot of the narrative um, coming out this week on Mordant, um, whether she was snubbed or not, leader of the house is a crucial role and one that Sunak really needs somebody quality in there. And Penny Mordant is possibly one of the most quality people we've seen holding that position, uh, not just in at the dispatch box and her sort of ability to do that, as we saw when she stepped in for, for Liz Truss on a, on a UQ in the dying days of, the, of that premiership, um, but also just on the day-to-day running of the business of the house, because everyone focuses on the whips when it comes to sort of parliamentary stability. But actually, managing government business comes from the leader's office, and that is crucial. And Penny uh, Morden has shown herself sort of very adept to that. And it covers a huge brief as well, because leaders' questions, you can get asked everything under the sun. Uh, and yes, your your normal response is, well, the honourable member can bring forward a... Uh, you know, question in the usual manner or just somehow, you know, batting it away. Nonetheless, you kind of have to show that you're sort of interested and care about MPs across the board. And parliamentary management is going to be so crucial to Sunak's survival. So it's actually worked out quite well for him that he's got someone good in the role. And it's a prominent position for her. She gets a lot of airtime. She's managed to get to dominate um, today, Thursday's um, sort of proceedings by getting the um, house suspended because she was off doing the Privy Council reportedly, um, showing off the sort of two twin aspects of the role as uh, Lord President of the Council as well. Um, So she's certainly able to use it as a platform if she wants to. Uh, Yeah, I I think that's totally true. And I think there is definitely a case to make for saying that Rishi Sinek has kind of built a cabinet and is building a ministerial team where he's putting the right people in the right jobs, right? Because uh, it doesn't look like a revenge cabinet the way that uh, Liz Trusses did. And it doesn't necessarily look like he's just promoting all his mates, although a lot of his mates have obviously ended up with jobs. Um, uh, you know, he sacked a bunch of people and he kept on a number of his critics. So it, there isn't a clear narrative as to, you know, he's kind of doing favours for some and punishing others. So yeah, there's definitely, I'm sure the Sunak team would obviously argue, you know, We've just done the things that we think are right in terms of getting the right people into the right positions. Tom, we'll come to the economics in a bit more detail shortly, but what do you make of the decision to keep Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor? I think it makes a lot of sense, uh, partly for what Amelia was saying just then about um, the need for, to project stability. And that's no, no more the, the case or, or is, is the case much more in uh, the economic role than anywhere else, given that you know, much of what precipitated Liz Truss's demise was um, the 
sort of jitters in the markets. Um, and also the fact that even though the statement that was going to be on the 31st of October has been delayed until the 17th of November, that's still only three weeks away. That's not very long to, to develop an economic program. Um, so you know, keeping that continuity where Hunt has at least had a week to be working on it is helpful. I think also the fact that Jeremy Hunt went into the role as Chancellor really using many of the lines that Rishi Sunak himself would agree with, the points that he was making over the summer about the importance of showing fiscal stability. I think at least at, at the high level in terms of the importance of uh, showing, sort of demonstrating sustainable and credible public finances, they're broadly on the same page. And so for that reason, at least in the short term, um, it didn't seem worth moving Jeremy Hunt on to create that extra instability. Kath, beyond setting up his cabinet, one of the other big tasks for Sunak in his first few days is setting up his wider number 10 team. Mm. That was obviously one something that got a lot of attention under both Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss in how they approached that. What do you, what sense do you get of how Sunak is setting up his team? I actually don't know. The only thing I've seen was Playbook this morning uh, talking about the, the quest for the new director of comms and setting out all the runners and riders. Um, and Rishi Sunak's obviously got some good connections um, out there in uh, the lobby world, as well as uh, obviously people who have previously served in comms roles, either under him or elsewhere in government. Um, one of the things that we argued uh, in the run-up in the sort of leadership campaign was actually don't change too much too t- quickly. So under Truss, when she came in, there was this massive slimming down of number 10 and moving a lot of roles out into um, the cabinet office. The difficulty is you can never really fully analyse this. You get sort of people briefing or leaking about it, fully analyse what went wrong, what didn't. I think a lot of... Um, People believe that the lack of experience um, in number 10 under Liz Truss probably contributed to uh, the disaster premiership. Um, but uh, you don't know whether or not that the impact of those sort of moving of, of roles out played a part. One of the ones we're particularly focused on is, um, again, parliamentary handling, moving that out, the sort of Nikki DaCosta role, um, I think is probably a mistake. But we've said don't do don't reverse all of that too quickly because yet more chaos is probably not the best thing. It's kind of see how it works, see how it works for you because also you may have been chancellor, but you've never actually been on the inside of number ten in terms of the job. Obviously, he has been um, not intru- including for cake um, many times before physically. Um, but see how it works before you kind of come to the settled design. You know, it may be that over a period of time, he works out what is best for him as prime minister and how he operates. But I don't know. I mean, I assume there's quite a lot of uh, previous Sunak aides who have come in to help him out. But Emilio might have better intel than me. I, I don't have a, a hell of a lot. But yeah, that's that's from the ones that we know. Yeah, that's the case. You know, he's got uh, Larissa uh, Chesterfield, who has been doing his comms for a, a very long time, who at the moment at least has kind of assumed the role of press secretary which is a very important role um yeah potentially tip for for something more senior director of communications maybe um i think he's got cass horowitz who was uh doing a lot of the social media stuff he's kind of very much responsible for the kind of brand sunak thing um you know expectations that he might get liam booth smith back in etc yeah people that have been around him for a long time i think are, are going in with him um he's also keeping some people uh 
or, or allowing um, other people to keep existing people. So, for example, I think Cameron Brown, who was um, be, who was spadding for um, uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, and uh, Quasi before that, is sticking on to sorry, who yeah, who was with Hunt. Well, Hunt came in for Truss, and with Quasi before that, is staying with Hunt now. Uh, for example, so there are elements of old regimes that are kind of sticking around as well. But yeah, at the moment, there isn't a completely clear picture about what the advisor situation is. Kath, you just touched there on the shift from number 11 to number 10 Downing Street, geographically not a long way, but how how different is it that Rowley now has? Oh, it is very different. I mean, the fact that economic policy is so crucial um, is obviously a help, um, and particularly now that he's given himself a bit more time to look over the um, plans that Hunt has got for, I don't even know what we're calling it now, the sort of mini spending review. I think it's an autumn statement. Autumn statement. Okay, great. That's a bit easier. Uh, The medium term fiscal statement. Um, So that obviously is a help for him, but the the big challenge is going to be um, domestic policy, which the Chancellor always has a view on because the Treasury's fingers are across what every single department does when it comes to public spending. Um, But it's a very different perspective when you are prime minister um, and levelling up is a a good example of that, um, that, you know, you end up being forced to take a very different perspective on it than you do as chancellor. Um, Foreign domestic, uh, foreign and um, defence policy is obviously going to be the big challenge and um, for, for prime ministers, especially when you have such a major issue going on in Ukraine. Obviously, him taking over hasn't changed at all the UK's position. Ben Wallace has ch- stayed on. James Cleverley, who obviously wasn't that long in the role, but has also stayed on, um, is going to help him. But prime ministers are key figures on the world stage for the UK, um, developing those relationships, the kind of talks in the margins of various international summits. Um, all of these things are a really crucial role for, for prime ministers. So how he does in all of that is still a really big open question. Um, I think for me, the big thing is just understanding how number 10 works very differently from um, number 11 and uh, from the Treasury, because the Treasury is quite a stable organisation in terms of its structure. Um, You have a a small private office, whereas number 10, it's almost like you have a massive private office that is constantly flexing and changing, and it's full much more of political advisors who may have um, be sort of going off and doing their own thing if you don't keep a control on them. And that's what we saw under Boris Johnson. So that's going to be the big challenge for him. Um, and, and also managing cabinet is very different from, uh, he would have been involved in lots of cabinet battles as, as chancellor, but it's very different uh, when you're the prime minister doing that. So steep learning curve, I think. Let's move on then to look at the economy in a bit more detail, since this is probably going to be at least one of the key issues that defines Sunak's premiership. And probably, as Cathy have already mentioned, where he's perhaps on most comfortable ground to begin with. Tom, the fiscal statement, as we've talked about, has moved again. Was that inevitable? I think it was. Jeremy Hunt has obviously been working on this plan pretty quickly um, and, and wanted to deliver something quite quickly to deliver certainty to markets. But Six days between Sunak coming in as prime minister and the statement happening, there was no time there to sort of kick the tyres of the policy to put his own stamp on it. And even if Hunt and Sunak are broadly aligned on on the overall direction, you know what you do with your fiscal policy fundamentally determines what you can do with your domestic, in particular, policy agenda. So it's absolutely 
you know, it makes a lot of sense that the Prime Minister will want enough time to actually have a say in, in that statement. Uh, the, the other reason that we've heard that uh, the statement's been delayed is so that the OBR forecast can take into account lower um, interest rates expected by markets. That will then feed into the next forecast and will mean that the sort of fiscal hole that they're trying to fill with tax increases and spending cuts is smaller. So that also makes their job easier. But I think the primary reason is it's a new prime minister. He needs to have some say in, in what's going on in his, his first budget or whatever we're calling it. Yeah, it's very interesting on that, the question about market expectations, because obviously the, the reason Kwarteng brought the statement forward from the end of November to October was precisely to give markets reassurance, allegedly, and bring down those future borrowing costs. And actually, as you say, the mere announcement of Sunak as the new prime minister seems to have achieved that anyway, and somewhat sort of reduced the pressure to immediately spell out the precise details. So what are Hunt's priorities then? What are we expecting to see in that November 17th statement? The immediate priority, and I think the focus of that statement will be on demonstrating sustainable public finances, which you know, is something of a, a movable concept, but it seems pretty clear from the way Jeremy Hunt's been talking that he defines that as debt falling or being on course to fall as a share of GDP in a, in a few years' time. We don't know exactly how he's going to define that. And actually, the fiscal rule that he chooses is going to be really important, both in terms of framing that statement and how much he needs to do, but also just framing the, the government's wiggle room. If he decides to stick with Rishi Sunak's rule, for example, that would require um, a balanced budget, a balanced current budget in three years. So only borrowing to invest in three years. If he gives himself a bit more space and only has to achieve that or even just achieve debt falling, which could be a bit easier in five years, there's less that he needs to do. But based on reports, based on how we know that the forecasts have moved since March, it's pretty clear that he will need to do something. Uh, the, the latest number that's flying around seems to be a, a fiscal hole. Uh, again, that what, what that means depends on what rule they, they're going for, but a fiscal hole of about £35 billion, um, that's almost 2% of, of GDP. That, that would require some combination of uh, quite large tax rises or spending cuts across either um, welfare or government departments. And those are going to be difficult decisions. So I think it's going to be quite a sobering statement. And I'm sure there'll be lots of both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister telling us that we need to recognise what difficult times we're in and therefore the difficult, responsible decisions that they're taking. We published a paper earlier this week along with SIPFA, which looks at the prospects of the government repeating its 2019 austerity programme within public services. Tom, you were one of the authors of that report. It won't be easy, will it, to find easy savings here? No, what, what we showed in, in that report was that uh, the sort of 2010 austerity programme uh, was bigger probably than what will need to be done next, although depending on how much money you're looking for, possibly not that much bigger. But we also just showed that the situation now is much different to then. 2010 came after 10 or 12 years of quite generous spending increases for departments and public services. Public services generally were performing pretty well. That's not the case now. Even before the pandemic, most departments had performance had deteriorated and public services were doing much worse. That's what our recent performance tracker publication showed. That was made even worse by the disruption of the COVID pandemic. Uh, leading to back backlogs in, in lots of services. And also, if you look at just the, the way that spending was cut in the 2010s, it relied quite heavily on cutting staff numbers and squeezing public sector pay relative to the private sector. That was somewhat easier to do in 2010 when uh, public sector pay was actually at 
a sort of quite a high point relative to private sector pay because the private sector had just gone through the Great Recession and most public services were quite well staffed. Now we're in a position where most public services are already short staffed, struggling uh, to recruit and retain enough workers. And after 12 years of public sector pay squeeze, uh, public sector pays at a record low. So it really doesn't seem possible um, that you could repeat the same tricks again. And you know, it stands to reason that if you're looking to make cuts in departments and public services, you find the easy ones first. And insofar as there were any easy efficiency savings, I think it's fair to assume that those have you know, found long ago. And now if you're cutting spending on public services, you're talking about you know, providing a worse or a less extensive service. And those are the, the difficult decisions the Chancellor and Prime Minister will be making. Emilio, spending cuts could be quite tricky for Rishi Sunak to persuade his MPs that, to get on board with this. And obviously, departmental spending cuts don't necessarily, well, don't have to be voted on within Parliament. Um, but you saw under Liz Truss the debates about would they or wouldn't they try to make cuts to triple lock state pension or to benefits. And she seemed to get into some hot water over whether she'd actually be able to get those kind of cuts past her party. What? How tricky do you think it will be for Sunak to find ways to cut spending? Um, I don't know. It's going to be tricky. Okay. It's going to be tricky. So, so I think in a way, Truss has made it kind of easier for him because she's created, she's created such a mess that I think everyone completely accepts that something's going to have to be done to try and fix the mess, you know, and that's, I think why he was using exactly those words when he came to Downing Street to basically kind of prepare not just MPs, but the public as well for the fact that there's going to have to be some, as politicians like to put it, difficult decisions. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of these things are going to be fiercely fought over. Yeah, like you say, the triple lock issue is going to be a big issue for a lot of conservatives. Um, issues like whether or not they um, keep uh, benefits rising in line with inflation, that's going to be a big issue that, you know, you'd imagine that the opposition parties particularly would um, would want to pick up on. Um, there's going to be rows potentially about foreign aid. We've seen Andrew Mitchell uh, en ending up in uh, government and also uh, sitting in the cabinet to discuss uh, foreign aid. Obviously, he's a big advocate for raising it back up to 0.7% of GDP. Uh, which suggests that either that might happen or it suggests that Rishi Sunak wants to get Andrew Mitchell on side so that when it doesn't happen, Andrew Mitchell can try and kind of sell whatever the, the, the fudge or the future plan is um, to other MPs. Uh, some of the things that I think um, Labour is also going to be keeping on are things like um, capital spending on some of the local projects that have been announced on things like road building, etc., that might irritate a lot of uh, constituency MPs. Um, and obviously, if it irritates the Conservatives, then that makes life much more difficult for Rishi Sunak. Um, and then similar things, rowing back uh, even more on Northern Rail, for example, that, uh, you know, big characters like Jake Berry, the previous chair of the Conservative Party, uh, won't appreciate very much. So there are there are numerous minds in this minefield of, you know, not only reversing trustonomics, but trying to, you know, save a lot of money as well. And yeah, it isn't going to be easy, I think, for Rishi, but he's kind of done his best to try and lay the groundwork in advance by basically warning people that it's going to happen. Kath, we at the IFG have talked about the need for Sunak to massively improve on Liz Truss's attempts to manage the parliamentary party. How does he do that? Uh, I think he's benefits from the fact that it's what five former chief whips were part of the campaign to get him into number 10. So he's certainly got the intel behind him on the parliamentary party and people who are experienced at doing it. Um, and Simon Hart, his his new chief whip, is uh, supposedly, again, somebody who's got good connections across. 
Um, I think the key issue for him, though, is, like I say, this kind of 3D chess of how you keep the different wings of the party um, together and a potentially warring cabinet uh, on all of these tricky issues. And some of that's going to be about the sort of hard questions, like you say, um, Amelia, of, of how he sort of balances getting through a difficult decision. But some of it's also going to be sequencing of things. So one of the things will be he's got two years. So normally, you know, coming in, you might say, right, we'll get through the pain now so that we can have something, you know, nice rabbits out the hat just before the the general election, improve our, our ratings then. Um, the, your other option is kind of throw things forward to beyond the 2024 um, election so that most MPs can sort of think, well, that's fine, I can campaign on that. Um, I think, I mean, the key thing for them at the moment is probably also giving Labour yet more attack lines. You know, they the last, uh, whatever it is since July, um, months of um, leadership contests has seen uh, an awful lot of people basically critiquing conservative MPs, conservative leadership candidates, prime ministers critiquing the last 12 years of conservative rule. Um, so Labour have got huge numbers of that. And we saw, I mean, the whole fracking um vote was basically a way for Labour to be able to get uh, MPs for whom fracking was a huge issue in their constituency forced to have to vote in favour of it in order that they can use that. And and so it's going to be almost a sort of prolonged general election campaign for the next um, two years. And a lot of the the way in which he handles his parliamentary parties is partly the sort of short-term survival of you cannot get to a situation, as we saw last week, because you end up precipitating an early general election. Um, but also, you've got to be able to get enough of your MPs to a position where they feel they can campaign in their constituency without this massive baggage hanging over them. And, and I was going to say, I think one of the, one of the benefits for him in a way is that obviously the Conservative Party generally is kind of staring the Grim Reaper in the face a little bit at the moment. Uh, you know, it's got some absolutely it's terrible... It's almost existential. Exactly. Yeah. It's got some absolutely terrible poll ratings uh, while Labour is riding very much higher. Um, and, you know, if there's one thing that can be assured that will help Conservatives kind of put their ideologies aside, it's the fact that they might lose their seats in the next election. So if Sunak can convince them that, you know, this is what we're going to need to do to hope to have any chance of not even just being kind of pretty much, you know, not far off wiped out in the next election, uh, then this is what we have to do. And also, in a, you know, he's kind of in a privileged position in the sense that uh, Liz Truss just had the worst leadership ratings ever. If the if the polls for the Conservatives start to tick up, then they will back Sunak at least, you know, while that continues to happen. So he's got a bit of time, I think, for, for the moment. And I mean, already we're seeing that along with sort of stability in the markets, you're starting to see the early signs of stability in the polls as well with um, I think Labour having come down a few points and, and the Conservatives going up a few points, it's still massive, massive gap. But the other key difference is that Sunak's personal poll ratings aren't too far off of um, Keir Starmer. So that is also going to be the sort of one to watch. It's really kind of all to play for in the next two years. Emilio, how do you think Labour approaches this then? It's, is it sort of everything to lose for them in a sense, almost starting from such a high point now? Uh, well, I think there are probably some people in Labour that do think that, but I think that that would be a bit foolish to think like that. Obviously, they're, they're trying to go for the kind of 95, 96 mantra of, you know, no complacency. Um, I think there are definitely a few people in Labour who have accidentally tipped over into that kind of complacency world, but they might, you know, start to rethink when they see how Rishi's and it operates. Obviously, it's early days for Rishi. He might somehow implode as well, like Liz Trusted. But yeah, I think that Labour would be a bit silly to, to, to make that assumption. Um, I think 
I think Labour's going to be kind of frustrated. Some people I spoke to reckoned that they were a bit more worried about potentially being up against Penny. Um, but actually, I think Rishi is 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 definitely a worry for them because not only does he have the kind of, uh, you know, at least on his feet, like we were saying in speeches, he's very wooden, but on his feet kind of being challenged and just answering questions, he's actually quite good. Uh, and I think that's going to be a problem for them. And he's also got the kind of economic clout that I think that maybe some people thought that Penny might not have. Um, so he's kind of got, the two things that he probably needs to to make a good uh, opposition, for want of a better word, to, to the opposition Labour Party. Um, so I think, yeah, they will be a bit concerned. Um, one of the left-wing Labour MPs I spoke to yesterday was saying that, you know, Keir had obviously looked pretty good and pretty competent over the last, you know, kind of two or three years against, firstly, a very chaotic Boris Johnson, and then secondly, um, Liz Truss, who was, you know, kind of a bit hopeless. Um, and now that he's up against Rishi, and, you know, they were saying this after the PMQs yesterday, Keir is going to have to find some sense of character. Um, because I think that, yeah, when he was able to be the person that looked like the kind of stable, maybe boring, but that's what we want kind of guy, uh, it was kind of working for Labour. Whereas, if Rishi tries to kind of take that position, but also has a bit of that political bite as well, that I think that kind of people like and kind of gets the MPs behind him, et cetera, then I think that might be a struggle for Keir. So um, yeah, they might have to start rethinking their their strategy and, and how Keir presents himself gem- generally, I think. Unfortunately, I think we're coming to the end of our time now, but just before we finish, Emilio, what did you make of Liz Truss's final speech as Prime Minister? Uh, the one like when she actually left Downing Street mm. for the final time. I mean, she's just always bonkers, isn't she? Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's always fascinating uh, uh, to see Liz Truss say pretty much anything, um, probably for the wrong reasons, unfortunately. But she, um, it was just, there was just this thing of, I didn't get anything wrong, basically. That was the kind of main takeaway of her speech. It was kind of, you know, despite having very limited things to list as to what they'd done, i.e. I was Prime Minister when the Queen died, which maybe isn't the best look. Um, And, you know, we reversed the the national insurance um, uh, uh, issue that they debated throughout the leadership And the energy package. Yeah, and and, and of course the energy package. You know, apart from those few things, I mean, you know, if she was only there for two months, so how much really can you do, especially when a big chunk of it is taken up with uh, uh, national mourning? Um, But still, she kind of insisted, you know, the, the subtext was I was right and everyone else was wrong, um, which, you know, maybe one day we'll all agree that somehow that was the case because they didn't get enough time or whatever to implement their economic plans. But um, yeah, I think most people would uh, probably disagree. Kath, as the historian on the panel, lots of prime ministers see their legacies and reputations boosted the longer they're out of office. Do you think Liz Truss stands much chance of that? I uh... Probably not, just in terms of timing. Um, a lot is going to depend on how she reacts now. I mean, you know, I'm slightly forgiving of your final speech. You do the I was right all along kind of thing, because in the end, it must be so awful to leave in those circumstances that um, whatever you can say to yourself to to make it feel better, you know, go ahead. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I can't see historians sort of finding a way of um, – um, you know, saying this was the sort of lost opportunity of of, of Britain. Um, it's it's going to form part of conservative debates for for years to come. Of you know, should we have got rid of Boris Johnson? Uh, was Liz Trust the right candidate then? You know, how did how did it all work out? Kind of the what ifs. Um, I'm sure there could be an entire book of the what ifs of the last year. Um, but yeah, I just can't see a way in which it, the reputation gets revitalised from that kind of low. 
Short, shortest serving prime minister. I mean, that's that's how history is going to remember this trust. She, I said this last week. She got a lot packed in for her short time. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Just it wasn't all good stuff. Do you think that fifty day record will ever be broken? Oh, I mean, I wouldn't put it past UK politics, but <laughs> you know, never say never. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Kath Haddon, Tom Pope, and especially to Emilio Castellicchio. Good of you to join us and good luck with early starts. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> and thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do leave us a review too. We're running a great event on Monday to kick off the week, where we'll be exploring how Rishi Sunak can fix the government. That's kicking off at 9.30. You can register to watch online or... or join us here at the IFG. I'll be on the panel, as will Kath, Jill Rutter, Emma Norris and Sam Friedman. That austerity paper we discussed earlier is out now and available to read at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can also find all our latest commentary and graphics explaining and analysing Synac's first days in office and his reshuffle. Have a good weekend, everyone. I don't want to jinx things, but politics is going to get a bit calmer for a while, isn't it? See you next week. <laughs>